1: My name is Mary Ellen Vianne, and I'm an elder and currently serving as Clerk of Session here at First Press. Please join me in our call to worship. The Lord is merciful and gracious, Slow slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord delivers us from bondage and sets our feet in liberty. Our faith depends on the grace of God. Praise the Lord who gives life to the dead. Our life depends on the grace of God. Friends, God is
2: with us and for us. Let us us worship our God. Friends, our Old Testament lesson this morning comes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 33 through 42. If you care to read along, it can be found on page 57 in your pew Bible. Listen for and hear the word of God. The Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed crowd also went up with them and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. It was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt that same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout their generations friends the word of the Lord thanks be to God
1: and we continue in reading from the living word of God 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses one through four, may we be open to the hearing, the understanding, and the application of God's word. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For the season of Lent, we are tracing one of the most remarkable stories ever to be recorded. Sure enough, it's recorded in the Old Testament portion of our scriptures. In the book of Exodus, the great liberation of the people of God out of bondage in Egypt uh, through a journey in the wilderness culminating in the reception of the promised land that God had said God would provide, even to the people's ancestor. Abraham. Uh, Last Sunday we left the people of Israel in their captivity under the rule of Pharaoh. I talked about from an allegorical perspective how this narrative, at the beginning of this narrative rather, sort of shapes uh, an impression in us about how we are in fact in the world. Uh, What state of things we live into and are born into. I, I, I made the connection that That the people's enslavement under the brutal and wicked hand of Pharaoh points to the truth of our total depravity. It points to the fact, as ancient Christian writers have said throughout the history of the church, that we, we all have sinned, as Paul has said, and fallen short of the glory of God, that we all fall under the power of sin, that this sin sickness is universal. It's like an inherited disease that we cannot escape and no self-improvement plan, no amount of human effort or agency, no measure of self-determination or will can liberate us from the power of sin. And just as it is with the people under the rule of Pharaoh, God is going to have to do something. God is going to have to intervene. God is going to have to loosen the chains that bind us to this sinful state and this sinful condition. God will have to liberate us from our idolatry, from our desire to be God, and our capitulation with evil and its power in the world. God is going to have to do something. That's where we left the people last week. And as we move on in the Exodus narrative, we discover that God has chosen Moses as a witness to God's power and as the ambassador of God's mission to liberate the people. That through the words and, and voice of Moses that God will, will speak and then God will act in a decisive way to break those chains and and. And whether it was in Sunday school or whether it was the voice of Charlton Heston or whether, if you're a younger person, Disney's the prince of Egypt, we all know that famous line Moses was instructed to speak to Pharaoh. Church, help me. Let my people go. We know that line. Moses speaks it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, though, will need some convincing of this foreign god's power, this god the Hebrew people call Yahweh. But sure enough, ten plagues later, not only does Pharaoh want them gone, but the whole people of Egypt, the whole nation, wants them out. Less and even greater calamity befalls them. And we see in this journey story, we see in this Exodus narrative liberation, we see God act in a decisive way in time, in human history, that God is not far off but that God is involved, that God is moving and acting in a clear and present way. This part of the Exodus narrative foreshadows the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to be talking about how this narrative brings an illumination of sorts, some light into some of the core convictions of the Christian faith, especially as we journey in this season of Lent. And this act of liberation, many... Uh, Christian scholars have said, it points to the ministry of Jesus Christ. For Jesus in many ways is like the new Moses. He's like the new Moses. Moses was a prophet sent by God who announced and led the people out of of a physical bondage and slavery. And Jesus is a prophet. He is no less the son of God. Announcing and leading and living for and dying for the liberation of all humanity. Not just physical liberation, but also liberation of the spiritual kind. Freeing us from the bondage of sin. Paul says it this way, In Adam all have died, but in Christ all have been made alive. You see, God's salvific act to liberate our sin-sick souls was the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we call an act of amazing grace. It is nothing that we deserved. It's nothing that we have earned. God did not act in this way because of our morality, because of our ethics, because our theological profundity. God act because God is love. And God loves us just as we are and moves. And Paul says this in Galatians, For freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. I mentioned this yoke of slavery last week. What, is it, what does it look like? I think in, in two principal ways. Number one, it looks like trusting in the idols of our age. We put our confidence and put our faith in the idols of our age, whatever they may be. But it also looks like collusion with evil and its power in the world. But because of what Christ has done, we no longer have to trust those idols. Because of what Christ has done, we are free to participate, not in the evil and its power in the world, but free to participate in God's good, which is moving and active in the world. Christ has set us free from sin. We're free to love God, free to love our neighbor, and we're free to love ourselves. Christ has freed us by grace through faith. And because of this decisive act of liberation, there's a new reality to be had. There's a new way of being human that we are called to live into. The choice of God to act is outside of our choice. But now our free will is called upon. Will we live into this new reality or not? My favorite illustration of this choice is is captured in a story I shared a few years ago. It's worth sharing again because I think it, it opens us up to this deep theological point. Uh, When Katie and I lived in Germany a few years ago, I befriended a man named Falker Weber. And at one time, many years ago, Falker was a German intelligence officer. A few months after the Berlin Wall had uh, fallen and the communist government in the east was beginning to crumble, he was charged to take a, a group of soldiers into the former East Germany and to investigate intelligence houses. It was sort of a reconnaissance mission. He was going into these houses to recover any information, any data that might be helpful for the emerging unified government. And upon coming to one of these houses, his group made an astonishing uh, discovery. They were in the basement, or they thought they were in the basement, when one of the soldiers discovered a secret door. It led to a deeper level, another basement below the basement. The men drew their guns. They began to walk down the steps. They rigged the steel metal door with explosives it blew off and they rushed in and to their utter amazement they found 20 East German soldiers living underground. There were 20 beds and enough food rations for two years but what was most remarkable was that they still had a direct line of communication to Moscow And Moscow was still giving them directives and orders and information as if nothing had ever changed. As if the wall was still up. As if there wasn't a new reality on the move. You can imagine these soldiers' amazement when Falker said to them, Brothers, it's over. The wall is down. From a Christian perspective, Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new reality. The dividing wall of hostility built by sin has been destroyed by his resurrection. We're now invited to ascend from the basement of sin and to live life in this real reality in this new normal of liberation and freedom where we can commune with God and commune with one another and be a part of what God intends to do for us and for the whole world. But I want to be very clear. I'm not naive at this point. This ascension is no cakewalk. To climb these stairs out of the old is a difficult journey indeed. Just because we've been liberated from the bondage of sin... Doesn't mean that we always choose God. Just because we have said that, yes, Jesus, we want you to be, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, doesn't mean that, that evil and its power and, and the force of that evil and its power in the world does not affect us. It doesn't mean that we stop sinning. It doesn't mean that the pain and death and burdens that we carry all of a sudden cease in our lives or in the life of the world. For some of us, despite hearing the gospel invitation to emerge out of the basement over and over and over again, we've heard it a million times. We actually have come to the place where we prefer the basement. We prefer it. We prefer to live in the misery of our own autonomy and the absurdity of our idolatry because, at least in those moments, we feel as if we are in control. The basement is familiar to us. We know our way around. We, we, we have heard the messages that have, that have come into it, and we've, we've bought into them, and, we, and we're comfortable with that. There's actually a point in Israel's journey, uh, we, we'll read about it in Exodus 15 in the coming weeks, where, where the people begin to complain to Moses about their wandering, even to the point of contemplating a return to the brutal oppression of their slave masters in Egypt. In other words, they're thinking about what it would be like to go back to the basement, to live that reality, and we might wonder why would they want to do such a thing And I think in part, and there's probably many reasons, but at least in part, because choosing to return to the basement, choosing to return to Egypt, is at least an expression of our autonomy. I can control that. Because when you're in the wilderness, when you're up there above the stairs, when you enter the new normal, when the terrain is unfamiliar, and when you feel like life is just a wandering mess, you've got to trust God for everything. You've got to trust God for the very sustenance of your life, for the direction that your life will go. And for many of us, it's much easier to live in the basement because at least the basement is familiar and it's known. But up there, out there in the wilderness, that's hard to trust God with all that we are, that God will, in fact, lead us home. But that's part of the journey. It's to ascend from the basement and and enter into this light and to trust God, that God's direction for our life will be good and that God is the only one who can lead us home. I want to close with this uh, final thought. When God freed the people during the time of Moses, they they left these storehouse cities. We talked about the storehouse cities last week. They left these storehouse cities, 600,000 men. doesn't include women. doesn't include children. Probably close to 2 million people make their exodus out of Egypt. And they make their first stop. I said last week, we're going to stop with the people along the way. And their first stop is a place called Sukkoth. Now, this proper name has its root in a Hebrew word that means to weave together. It's the same root that is a part of a word that describes one of Judaism's major religious and holy festivals, Sukkot. Sukkot is S-U-C-C-O-T-H. Sukkot is S-U-K-K-O-T, but the same root. Sukkot actually means uh, temporary dwellings or tents. Woven together. Do you see the connection? Something woven together, but in this case, they're, they're tents. And, and at least in part, these uh, tents and this uh, commemoration, this holy day, reminds the people of God's provision and care as they wander in the wilderness. That God met their every need along this difficult journey throughout those 40 years. And that's what they remember on Sukkot. That they lived in these temporary dwellings. They lived in these tents, totally vulnerable and yet totally dependent upon God. Like campers caught in a violent storm, isn't that much of our life? Isn't that much of our existence? Paul says it this way in his correspondence with the church at Corinth. For while we are still in this tent... To you hear that language? While we're still in this tent, we groan under the burden because we, we wish not to be unclothed but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed by life. I love that. What is mortal may be swallowed up, engulfed by life. See, Paul knows. This actually is, is part of what sort of undergirds this doctrine of, uh, uh, of sanctification. Justification is this idea that we've been made right with God because of what Christ has done and sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus himself. But we're in this temporary dwelling, we're in this tent that is, is vulnerable and it's exposed and it burdens us to live in this way. And Paul says that we, we, we long for that tent to be stronger, for clothes, for fabric, to be woven together so it's stronger, so it can withstand all that we face on this long journey we call faith and life. One of the interesting things about Paul's language here to the church at Corinth is that this isn't just some random image that he uses this, this, this image of being clothed in Christ is something that he repeats time and time again throughout his writing. In Galatians 3.27, he says it like this, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This clothing is, 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 is becoming more like Christ. This, this clothing is weaving together a strength so that we can journey on and trust God on this wilderness road. It's so fascinating to me that the first stop the Israelites make is this place that reminds them of how vulnerable they are. I mean, so many of us, right, once we think we, we believe and we, we say we have faith, but, but we know that, that the road is still difficult. It's not perfect. There's challenges and there's, there's vulnerabilities that we experience and, and we need to be We need to be fused together with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that this tent, isn't this so beautiful, this imagery, this woven togetherness, this tent needs to be woven together with Christ himself to put on his identity, to put on what he loves, to put on what he cares about, to put on his justice and his grace and his mercy. And that's what Paul is saying, this groaning. We we long for this tent to be strengthened. And the way that Paul says it will be strengthened is when it is infused with Christ himself. I mentioned that we were at Fifth Avenue Church. Katie and I were uh, in New York City for a few days on vacation, and and I visited the 9-11 Museum. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have been to the 9-11 Museum? Many of you have. I have only felt the feeling I felt being there one other time in my life, and it was Uh, in Germany, just outside the city of Weimar, in in a town called Buchenwald, where there was a concentration camp. when I was standing on that plot. And and if you've been to places like these, you have maybe a similar feeling. You you feel deep sorrow. You feel lament. But maybe, if you're like me, you also feel utterly helpless. Right? Because you're you're having that history play again right in front of your eyes, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to watch it unfold again and again and again. And and it just feels helpless. You realize how vulnerable you are in moments like these. You realize how fragile life is when you're standing in those places. On March 30th, 2002, a fireman was sifting through the rubble of the South Tower. Another man by the name of Joel Meyerowitz, who's an award-winning photographer, who was capturing the aftermath of of 9-11, happened to be walking by, and they knew each other. And, and the fireman called out to Mr. Meyerwitz, and he quickly came down this debris-formed hill with something in his hand. And it was a piece of steel, and it was actually shaped like a heart. It was shaped like a heart. And fused to this piece of steel was a portion of a King James Bible. Fused to it. You couldn't tell where one began and one ended. It had become one. Interestingly enough, the page that it was open to when that fusion took place was a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and in particular that bit about what it means to love your enemies and bless those who curse you and turn the other cheek. You know, in other parts of the museum, those who raised their hand, they've seen this. Other parts of the museum, they have this steel, right, on display as part of the museum. Steel that I'm sure the workers in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, when they were making that steel, thought, this is invincible. This will never be destroyed. And then you look at this museum, and you see how the heat and the toppling of the towers has malformed these pieces of steel and that which you thought was impenetrable and, and strong is actually fragile and vulnerable. And as I looked at this, and I knew what I was preaching this Sunday, I thought, what a perfect image of what we're trying to talk about here in this fusion, in this weaving together. Because we have this steel, and this steel, as I looked at it, I said, it represents my life. And sometimes I look at that steel and I think, oh, how strong I am, and how much faith I have, and, and how I'm not vulnerable, and how I'm protected. And yet the wilderness journey reminds me each and every day that's far from the truth. But the very Word of God, the very Word of God has been fused to this malformed piece of steel and in an indescribable way, has made us strong, has made it beautiful and hopeful. And I think it's the same for us, That is, as, as we think about this first stop along the way, this weaving together, that we need the very word of God, who is Jesus Christ, to be woven and fused into our life. Because the journey any other way, in any other way, In any other way, we'll end in our demise. And so what does it mean to put him on? What does it mean to take on his life? What does it mean to clothe yourself with his word and his values and his love? What would that look like in your life, in my life, if he was fused to the very core of who we are? even as we make this long journey home amen just in this short window of time maybe monday maybe just this week i wonder if we began to think about and discern what it would look like if we were to put on the clothes of christ as paul encourages us to to be woven together with his values with his justice with his peace with his mercy with his forgiveness with his grace, with his love. I mean, what would that look like in your life? I'm thinking about what that would look like in my life and, and maybe we will come to find this deeper fusion, this deeper connection, this woven together of who Jesus is in the very core of who we are. May his peace, which is a peace that surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts, your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life. Amen.